Okay. Welcome back, everyone, and a happy Friday. This show is brought to you through the power of a Wednesday, which... Woo! <laughs> Pre-recording. <laughs> that's what we're doing, although it is still unlive and completely unedited, so if we say something stupid, you'll probably still hear it. It'll still be there. Yep. <laughs> so, um, with that being said, and the fact that you should completely ignore that it's been said from now on, because it makes no difference whatsoever, we're going to start this show, as we do every show, yep. with some wonderful... Well, this isn't necessarily classic, but it is classic comedy. So um, get your ears perked up. Happy Friday. Happy happy break. And get ready to start laughing. <laughs> Definitely one of those things you have to think about as you're listening to it. Yeah. The fact that it also took the audience a couple seconds before they started laughing. <laughs> yeah. It, it takes a while to figure it out. It was, it was real good though. Thanks yeah, for sharing that. it's uh oh that was Victor Borgia. Apparently he was an excellent pianist, but no one ever really can be quite sure on that because he never really got around to playing the piano. Yeah. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, rumor has it he was very good. It's just it always took him forever to stop his shenanigans, and by the time he finished his shenanigans on stage, that was the end of the time he was supposed to be playing the piano. So <laughs> that was it. Interesting. Do you know where he's from? I believe he's from. Austria or Germany or Austria. somewhere okay, like that. Okay, well, makes sense. Yeah. Um, anyway, great comedian. Uh, check his stuff out on YouTube because pretty much all of it's there, and a lot of it is very visual, unlike this particular piece. Um, but a lot of it has, like, visual jokes with pianos and, and things uh, like that. Okay. And um, it's not usually as high-level thinking as that particular piece that we just listened to, but um, it's still hilarious. Yeah, definitely check him out. So today we are talking a bit about, uh, in the spirit of everyone having just finished panicking over their midterms, do we, like, work-life balance, and do we need to worry about our grades, what should you do when you leave university, that sort of thing. Uh, time management stuff. All that wonderful stuff. First off, get more sleep. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know who's listening. I can tell you right now, you're probably not getting enough sleep. Number one, just so you can do well on your finals and so you don't fall asleep in class. It's a really interesting thing, but um, if you get even um, a half hour less sleep than your body needs, your immune system can go down by up to 40%. As well as it, it affects your memory a lot too, especially when yep. you're studying. So when, once you study for a certain amount of time, at once, once you get to this point, whatever it may be, I mean, everybody's different. Um, you're going to want to stop and take a break mm -hmm. and get sleep, especially if it's late. <laughs> and I mean, I'm pretty sure pretty much everyone knows it. It's just no one does it. Yeah. And I think the reason why is if you are studying for an exam the next day mm -hmm. and you're not done studying, you're scared to go asleep because you're afraid that you won't have enough time the next morning to study. I know a lot of people are evening yep. people and the such like. It's it's harder for them to think in the mornings. But if you can schedule yourself to go to bed except, uh, exceptionally early and get up exceptionally early, you will be ready to start thinking exceptionally early. And although this requires you to know how much time you need to study, this is probably a good thing for you to figure out anyway, is how long does it take me to study for an exam? And it will allow you to have a much more alert mind both for the studying and the exam. Interesting. Although it'd, it'd probably take a little bit of 
planning ahead, especially at the beginning of the semester, to get your sleep schedule on on point and not and not go to bed super duper late. You don't want to mess up that schedule. Well, we do have the opportunity of a week off right now for you to do that. It's true. Um, things to think about on your spring break. <laughs> things to think about. <laughs> uh, if you're an evening person, studying uh, or um, scheduling your classes to be more in the evenings is probably a good thing. Uh, this university offers a lot of wonderful morning classes for people like me, but I'm pretty sure there are lots of afternoon classes. Um, give yourself that extra time in the morning to be able to actually do some thinking because it will help you in the long run. Um, on this similar note, how much um, do you think your grades matter? How much do grades matter? Well, in the big picture, uh, all, all that really matters is getting the degree so that you can get a job mm -hmm. and learning the material, not so much the letter grade itself. Exactly. Learning mm -hmm. is definitely the biggest part. A lot of people, we spend all this time in um, elementary school trying to get good grades so that we can continue in middle school, so that we can get good grades, so that we're ready for high school, so that we can get good grades, so that we can, college. we can get to a good college. Mm -hmm. And then uh, having spent that much time chasing after grades, we get to college and we don't realize the important thing, I mean, it's important to pass your class. And so the grade's yes. important as far as that's concerned. But the really important thing is to learn the material, like you just said. So it can be applicable to your job in the future. Exactly. And um, especially for someone like a CS major, probably about half to three-fourths of what you learn is going to be obsolete by the time you graduate. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, it, passing the, the class is important. Learning how to learn that material is much more important. Mm -hmm. L so you want to be able to figure out how to absorb the material they're giving you in that class quickly because that's what you're going to have to do for the rest of your life if you're going to be doing a lot of coding. Yeah, this is true. Um, for those of us who, like, I'm a theology major, the um, field isn't quite as rapidly changing, per se, as computer science. Some of the other ones, yeah. Um, it's a lot more like philosophy, where it's people talking about these ideas, and sometimes that you don't really get anywhere with that idea for a good century or three. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really just important to remember it for the long run, but the important aspect is to get those key things that are going to be an important part of whatever it is that you are studying that you need to know for the long run and get those in your head. And what's really interesting is at a place like Whitworth, the professors usually have their classes geared towards getting you to learn information that is actually useful. So if you focus on the information that is actually useful, you'll probably find that you pass the class. Maybe not with an A, but you'll pass the you class. You'll pass it and that's in the big picture all that matters exactly because as long as you learn <laughs> I mean wh what is a person hiring looking at do they look at the grades not necessarily they no. are probably looking at two things one is the pedigree where where are you at Whitworth we have a wonderful advantage in that those places that do know Whitworth think of it as great it has a an amazing it's got a good reputation, reputation yeah. um, I've uh, I was really rather surprised that um, some of the places that I've been to where people knew about Whitworth and I have yet to hear a negative thing about it. And this was before I was a Whitworth student. Um, this was back when I was in Colorado. And, and so it, we do have, I mean, we may not be Stanford or Oxford or something, but we still have a really good reputation. If you've graduated from here, you have a level up on someone who went to OSU or somewhere. Um, the second thing they're probably looking at is how much do I know about this person? So it comes down to, once again, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yep, connections. 
<laughs> connections. And this is why it's so important to do really well um, for all of you who end up doing internships. You really want to make a good impression with that internship. If you can both show yourself to be a really good employee and to some extent become, it may, not friends, but friendly with the people that you're working for, you've made connections. And even if you don't go back and work for them, they are still connections in the industry you're in and they can help you get into the actual job you want to do down the line. And of course, our professors are a wonderful resource for this as well. Mm -hmm. um, they continue to do research partially because they love what they're doing and so why not research it, but also partially to maintain those connections in the industry to help us get jobs when we graduate. And so um, leverage that aspect for when you get out of college, it is going to be so helpful to know people in what you're doing. Yep. So for all those hermits out there, definitely get get out there and meet people for sure. Definitely. I mean, the people that you're studying with today are your colleagues, bosses, and underlings of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Knowing them personally is only going to help. Um, and then, of course, when you graduate and you're an art history major and you can't find a job anywhere um, <laughs> and you're moving back into your parents' basement, there's one really important thing you should do. Um, this is a piece of advice that I um, received from a person who um, he, he gives it to people that are leaving jail. He's an ex-con. And the what, what his main message to the ex-cons leaving the jail or wherever it is, you know, whatever imprisonment they've been in, get a job. It doesn't matter. He said when he first left, he got a job as a dish boy and did that for like eight months. And that led to a slightly better job, which led to a slightly better job, and now he's making like three figures. And I mean, you're not everyone who's an ex-con is going to be making three mm -hmm. figures, but what a lot of people do when they initially can't get a job, whether they've just gotten out of prison or they've just gotten out of the um, prison of institutional-ness uh, that yeah. is the university, because it can feel that way sometimes <laughs> here, especially with yes. the food sometimes. Oh, can gosh. get just as old as prison food, um, <laughs> although it starts off a little better. <laughs> yep. But um, the the key is to get a job, even if it, has a, if it has nothing to do with what your field is. The fact that you've been working says a lot about who you are to your potential employer. So just any job immediately, don't wait on it, is what you're saying? I mean, if it's a couple of weeks, that's one thing. But oh, if you, but you're coming up on a month waiting, or yeah. yeah, if you're coming up on a month or two, mm -hmm. and you're not really seeing anything, and you can't really get um, an internship or work at some uh, do some sort of volunteering that has to do with what you're doing, you can't financially mm -hmm. handle that. Just get a job at a, a fast food place or something. It will make a big difference because you're demonstrating every single day that you work there with your four-year degree um, that you are worth hiring because you are willing to work. Yeah, no matter what the job is. Yeah, if, yeah. You ha okay. if I'm an employer and I'm trying to hire someone and they are, this is both their first job out of college, they are from the same university, they have the same grades. One has been working for three or four months and the other person has just been sitting in their mom's basement. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take the person who's been working because I know they're going to work when they get here because, my goodness, they've been doing this awful job that has nothing to do with what they're doing. <laughs> they because that step forward. Exactly. The other person didn't. They, they, right. are, they are showing initiative. 
initiative. There's a there's a wonderful word for the marketing <laughs> department. They're showing initiative, and that really is important for getting a job, um, and also for keeping it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, you're always working on your portfolio, and this includes after you leave and you're financially destitute. Um, <laughs> it, um, it really can help to, um, and, and I mean, in all of this, because this is wonderful that we have this wonderful radio station where we can say things like this and not be censored. In yeah. all of this, pray. Yeah, pray for sure. Pray through every step, um, continually praying. Um, and you may be led to different um, avenues than what we've just been talking about. But um, prayer will at least comfort you, <laughs> yep. if nothing else, and will probably lead to you having a better relationship with Christ um, and being able to better, li better listen to what he's telling you to do, which, of course, doing that just means whatever it is, you're going to have a wonderful, fulfilling career mm -hmm. after career after career because our generation doesn't stick with one anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> after career after career after <laughs> career. <laughs> we don't do multiple jobs. We do multiple careers. Interesting. <laughs> huh. Yep. So I guess the, the big takeaway uh, from this is pretty much do something. Don't just sit there and play video games. Yeah, and play video games or or just contemplate life. <laughs> 40 45% I hear now of video gamers are women. Really? Now, of course this includes Candy Crush. So I'm not sure <laughs> every person uh, yeah, I mobile gaming. <laughs> every person I hear on uh, the division is definitely a dude, but as far as gaming is concerned, women are joining, and isn't it wonderful? Unless you're a masochist, in which case right now you're probably peeing your pants. <laughs> Again. No, but that's good, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, girls, get out there and do some games. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, gaming industry is, is a funny thing, um, because they still seem... Uh, look at the, the biggest franchise still is Call of Duty, which is basically all geared towards uh, the people that are the white males in middle school or the white males who have the mind of a middle schooler. Yep. If you ever play it, um, I don't necessarily recommend it. It's not thing necessarily all that grand. Although the first two, I think actually the second Call of Duty was quite good. Um, World War Two. Yeah. Um, but the graphics are so old now that no one really seems to care <laughs> that it was an okay game. Um, also, it just there's so many other Call of Duties now. Uh, people oh look gosh, at they've made like what eight or something now so far. It's one per year. It's, yeah, it's like what Ubisoft tried to do with Assassin's Creed and failed because people like Assassin's Creed, but they don't like it that much. Yep. Also, it's a harder game to be able to copy paste. Um, I mean, if yeah, you look Call of Duty is a heck of a lot easier. I mean, it's just it's just straight up war. <laughs> yeah, well, and just the like even creating the maps, right? Mm -hmm. Because Call of Duty is basically this linear th linear game. For those of you who don't uh, know gaming, uh, if if you're imagining it, I say linear and I really mean that. Just take a piece of paper and draw a line. You can have it be any shape you want, but that's what uh, I'm talking about by linear map design. Call of Duty is you start at one end of that, that line that you drew on the paper, and by the end you're at the other end of the line of that piece of paper, and there's just a bunch of explosions and bodies in between. <laughs> um, there's not a huge amount of exploration. I mean, 
it's getting because open world shooters are sort of popular now. It's getting to the point more where it's basically they just make a square, a, a small square, and have you kind of run around the square and and inside of this. Uh, let's just say it's like a building. You're on okay. the roof of a building, and if you go off the edge of the roof of the building, you die. Except usually it's an imaginary wall that they come up with, but. The idea yeah. is you're in this area and you just kind of do your stuff in there and then you move on to the next area and do your stuff in there. And and each one's this like little tiny The confined region. areas with like paths in between, you're saying? But pretty much. Usually the path is just a level loading thing. Oh. But there's all this um, big hype about playing it your way, which basically means either you can run up behind someone and stab them or shoot them in the face. It really doesn't have a huge effect. But <laughs> some people really like that uh, as a concept. Way, but exactly. Yeah. Except one takes five times longer because you have to stare at them and wait for them to not be in view of anybody else. And then inevitably the game glitches out and they see you anyway, so then what was the point of all this? Yep. <laughs> um, Ubisoft, um, and at least maybe until recently, has, and I think even recently, has always attempted to accurately replicate a part of a city as, as closely as they possibly can with the technology available. Um, they've done with the Assassin's Creed series, yes. especially, but with a lot of their their games, this is sort of their signature. Um, I, I mean, everyone talks about Assassin's Creed. Um, oh, what was it? Brotherhood, Brotherhood, where it was a fairly historically accurate, slightly downscaled because they just didn't have the tech to put this into a a gaming console at the time. The the entire thing, but almost one to one scale replica of Rome during the Renaissance. Brotherhood was the second one, correct? Uh, it no, the it's the third. Third, it's okay. One, two, Brotherhood, Revelations, um, three, four, black, four, colon, Black Flag, because they decided to do a number and a name for that one. <laughs> Unity, um, Syndicate, and then I don't know what the next one's going to be because yeah. they're taking a year off to make the movie. Um, but those are the big ones, and of course they've done several side mobile games and some like micro game stuff on the side as well. That is a mm. different gameplay style, but set in the same universe. Um, it, it was a, a really cool map because you can walk around and look at all this cool old Roman stuff, and it's also the Renaissance, so you can meet Leonardo da Vinci and all that kind of thing. Um, and they did that for part of Venice. They did that for part of um, oh another oh. Not another famous famous um, place in Italy. I don't remember what it is. Florence. Oh, Florence. They okay. did it for part of Florence. And as the technology has improved, they've only enlarged the map size and increased the detail. So um, the uh, people hated it because as a game it was awful, but as a map, this thing was stunning. It's worth getting it on sale to just run around the map and look at stuff. Yeah, it gives you something else to do rather than go around killing people. Yeah, the one I'm talking about is um, Unity. And people hated it because combat-wise, it was awful. It was so painful to play that game. But they got the runny, jumpy thing down, and this is almost a one-to-one -one scale replica of the center of Paris during the Revolution, including corners that you would turn, and there's a mob there with a guillotine in the middle slicing people's heads off like my god they and and you could enter in because of course the whole town's being looted right so you could like break into one of these palaces um and see you know all this amazing gold everywhere and beautiful furnishings and they, wow. uh, they uh, ancient paintings in the places they're supposed to be all that kind of stuff like they went to so much detail to replicate because they're based in 
the sequel to Paris being Montreal, <laughs> um, <laughs> and where they speak a, a, a fake Parisian and talk a fake um, Paris, we are, are better than everyone sort of idea, um, cool. <laughs> the, the descendants of, of the Parisians. Um, but they, they, ha they really like that particular time period, so they really went all out to make it absolutely gorgeous, and it is, and it's historically accurate, at least as far as the map is concerned for the time period, maybe not the actual events that occurred. <laughs> um, but you can't just do that in a year, like you can Call yeah, of Duty. that's true. And so... It takes a little bit more time to make a, such a great scenery, mm -hmm. you know? Which you saw in the game that came directly after it. A year later, it looked way less pretty. And it was London, which is kind of a shame because I love London. Oh. And it was not oh, nearly they, as Did they as ruin beautiful. London? They didn't ruin it. Um, it's, they're, they're not really capable of ruining a map necessarily. Okay. They're capable of ruining gameplay. Maps, not really. But it just wasn't as pretty looking. Um, although they did do one really cool thing where they had a spin-off where um, instead of being during the Victorian area, it's during World War One, and you meet with Sin Churchill. Oh, that's cool. And it was this random side mission. I loved that ten times more than the actual main game. Because <laughs> it was so cool. And you're blowing up Nazis, which, or pre-Nazis, which is always a plus. Mm -hmm. Taking out any Reich member is, is fun, no matter if it's the first, second, or third. <laughs> Which, interesting to note, the original, I just realized this, the original Assassin's Creed games, except for the very first one, which is set fighting the English, are fighting semi-Germans for most of it. Really? To some extent. I mean, because, I mean, World War One stuff are Germans, yep. and then everything after that the majority of the Templars they're fighting are based out of, kind of out of Rome, but usually more northernly, because if you look at church history, the sort of center of power moved up into the German area. And so for a lot of Assassin's Creed, a lot of the headquarter stuff is actually based north of Italy in, in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> so you're kind of fighting them until the modern era, and then all of a sudden you're fighting them in Canada. But... Um, wow. Because, yeah, it makes so much sense that an evil organization would move to Canada. Well, I mean... Because they're known a, for their viciousness up there. I mean, there's a lot of land. I don't know. They can hide <laughs> a secret base or whatever. They're in a city. <laughs> oh, okay. They, they don't have a secret moon base or something. <laughs> they're, not, they're not interesting villains. They're just weird. They're really Those bad villains. Canadian villains. villains? Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> I can't do a Canadian accent at all. That, that, was, that was a little more Jamaican. Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, here's a question for you. Okay. Is it racist to do, as a white dude, an accent of someone else of a different race? Is it racist? Just to do the accent. Not, not, no con. Let's just say it's... I'm I'm not doing it in any demeaning way. I'm just using it as a point or something. I I wouldn't say it's racist then. I mean, unless you're but like I'm a white very, dude. Unless you're very uneducated with the accent and you do it. I mean, even if you do it poorly, well, I yeah, wouldn't say it's racist. Yeah, I, I mean, doing an accent poorly is uh -huh. no sin. Look at Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm a Cockney accent. I am. It's uh, yes, uh, definitely a Cockney. I have cotton balls in my mouth to make sure I get the right Cockney accent. Oh my gosh! 
Yes, it was so. Um, they gave up on the second movie they cast him that took place in England. Everyone had a perfect English accent except for Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> His two kids had English accents in the movie, and he didn't. What? Because <laughs> they gave up. It was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and they're like, no, just do an American accent. We don't care enough. Okay. Which maybe it's why it's not as popular as Mary Poppins. I don't know. Because it is kind of weird to have a random, tall, lanky American in England with two English children and a wife. Yep. A but bit, a little bit strange. But they they went with it. Uh huh. It was still a good movie. Yeah, I enjoyed it. But yeah, I mean, but I wouldn't I wouldn't really call it racist. Okay. I don't know. What do you, What do you think about it? I mean, I think it depends. I think I I agree with you that it's it depends on the context. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, you, it's not what you do, it's why you do it. Um, but I could also see people taking it as racist. Yeah, yeah, they could. I mean, if I do an Indian accent, um, and I'm just doing it like this, and it's sort of to prove a point or something, but let's say I'm doing the Indian accent, and I am pretending to be a really happy Indian who is just so happy to see all of you, it's going to be a wonderful time, welcome to my country, you know, and all of a sudden that accent becomes a lot more racist Mm -hmm. because it's stereotyping all Indians as uber cheerful mindless drones and and you may mean it in uh, a good way or whatever yeah but someone might walk by or whatever and hear it mm-hmm. and they could think that you're being racist exactly because they don't know the context and also not to say that um, all Indians are, are not super cheerful wonderful people um, <laughs> you run the risk of yeah. saying oh this isn't accurate well then they're awful people um but they're they're not also just desperate to get the tourists the tour the tourist dollars. I, I can't do that, but um, well, they're they're people just like us. I mean, everybody's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't you can't categorize one extreme side or the other extreme side. Yep. it's very fluid. Yeah, I'll, I I do sometimes think there are reasons why we have stereotypes. Um, because we intentionally reinforce them. So like uh, that that Indian stereotype of of the really jolly happy Indian person is kind of enforced by a lot of Indians doing that with the intent uh, w- with the fact that when they do that they get more money out of the American tourists that come to India. Oh. Right? Because this okay. is this is not who they really are, but it gets They're them money. They're it for their gain. Exactly. Because this is their living. Mm-hmm. This is how they are making their money. And by goodness, if it requires acting like a smiling idiot all day, I mean, Americans do that in Hollywood all the time, right? So what's wrong with doing it here? Oh, man. Um, because Bollywood is much better. I have mm-hmm. to say, Bollywood is, it has, we, we have better musicals. We have better actors. We have far better plot lines. Americans do not know how to do good movies. Not to mention it takes them forever and a buttload of cash. Who has the kind of money to spend on blocking off an entire freeway in LA for a stupid robot movie? I don't understand. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Which we did, by the way. Uh, I think it was the second Transformers movie. They paid millions of dollars to block they, off. They blocked the freeway? In LA. Oh, I did not know that. They intentionally like closed it for an, a, a day during the work week. Oh, how did at a main? Oh, people must have been so mad for all those. And I bet you all of them went and saw the movie anyway. Yep, they probably still saw mm-hmm. it. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, it depends on the context. <laughs> yep, for sure. 
and to some extent your competence with accents. I apologize to anyone from India, by the way. I'm I'm not necessarily good at at accents, <laughs> <laughs> but they're really fun. <laughs> they are. Um, so we are going to take a quick break and get some water, and in the meantime, we are going to leave you with a wonderful custom playlist, Lord willing. Um, to kind of get you in the mood for a wonderful, fun-filled break, this is Electro Swing. Far Ooh. better than dubstep. Far better than electro. Far better than swing. It's Electro Swing. Electro Swing. Uh, and FYI, I checked the lyrics, although sometimes it sounds like they're saying dirty words. That's just because they pronounce it really weird, because I think they're not from America, some of these people. So okay. um, the, 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 it is clean despite what it may sound like sometimes. Well, enjoy. Hey, hey. Okay. Welcome S back. So that was Electro Swing, a very weird genre, but one with wonderful things in it. Very interesting. And uh, so if you want to listen to more Electro Swing, of course, you can type just that straight into Spotify because they have a playlist for just about everything in the world. Um, but also Caravan Palace is a good band to get into if you like that. They were the people with the first weird song there in that track. Uh, we're going to shift gears now. This is technically a YouTube video, but the visuals are minimal and not necessary for understanding what he's talking about. Um, it will be the kicking off of our final topic for this er, this evening. This, evening, this yes. afternoon for us, this evening for you. So stand by and prepare to have your mind semi-blown. In Star Trek, the transporter moves you from one spot to another, saving on shuttle fuel and special effects budgets. In-universe, it's the safest way to travel. Yes, sometimes two guys die horrible mutilated deaths under rare circumstances, but trillions of individuals transport to work every morning without a hiccup. But what if the transporter isn't as safe as claimed? What if the death rate isn't point almost nothing percent, but 100 percent, because the transporter is a suicide box? First, how does the transporter work? There are technical manuals with pages and pages of hilariously over-specific details that yet say so little. Star Trek is nothing if not consistently inconsistent, but taking the most common elements, first the transporter scans you down to the quark, takes apart your atoms, and sends the pieces of you to the destination for reassembly. But is it you on the other end, or a copy that thinks it's you? Well, who is you? That's a hell of a big question, but let's try to be good scientists about it. We don't assume there's a magic part of you that can't be measured. After all, if it can't be measured, that means by definition it can't affect anything. So Occam's razor it away and we take you as you seem to be, a collection of atoms arranged to think they're you. And because the arrangement of atoms in post-transport you is exactly the same as pre-transport, you must be you. Case closed. But you might still have this nagging feeling that your experience of stepping into the transporter will be a funny sound, a bright light, then nothingness eternal. While down on the planet, a brand new life, complete with all your memories up to the moment before your death, popped into existence and assumed it's you. How could it otherwise? It lives a life as short as the mission, and a new creature with the memories of you both makes it back to the ship. If true, multiply this by all the life forms in all the ships in all the star systems, and this transport technology is a silent holocaust, which makes an average episode of Trek rather grim watching. 
and it's a small mercy when a crew member takes the turbo lift rather than site-to-site -site transport. But again, the measurements check out, so perhaps we're being paranoid and we're already late for our holiday on Ryza, so just step inside already. But atom reassembly is the optimistic version and can't be how the transporter really works because sometimes accidents combine two crew into one or split one into two. There aren't enough atoms in you to make a second you, so the transporter has to be turning atoms into energy and energy into atoms. You are destroyed, used to charge a battery, then recreated anew. This really seems like death, but the philosophy majors in the room are dying to bring up the ship of Theseus now, so fine. You take this ship on an adventure. As parts get worn, you replace each until eventually no piece is original. When you return, is the ship of Theseus still the same ship of Theseus you left on? Seems so. And this is what your body does daily via eating, bringing in new atoms, and excreting, losing atoms. Compare to the Cuddy Sark, a colonial tea ship burned down and restored with new parts. Is it still the same Cuddy Sark? The result is the same, all new parts, only the time it took is different. If you're happy ship of Theseusing through life, as you already do, then getting Cuddy Sarked by transport shouldn't matter, right? However, step into a working transporter with a broken disassembler and death is revealed. Pre-transport and post-transport you can disagree on who is you. And when Scotty tells pre-transport you, sorry, the disassembler's broken, give us a minute to fix it, you aren't going to wait around. That a copy of you made it to the destination is no consolation. The transporter has to be a suicide box. Okay, so why worry about the metaphysical implications of fictional technology? Because the transporter points us to the problem of consciousness. We were quick to cut out the idea of the unmeasurable before because everything we can measure about the copy is identical. But there is something unmeasurably different. The transporter forces confrontation with the possibility that there's something about being a conscious creature that isn't measurable from the outside. Did we not contain conscious brains ourselves, how would we know that other brains are conscious? Truth be told, you can really only know that you are conscious, and it seems polite to give other people the benefit of the doubt. But were a computer to claim that it was conscious, how would you know? Your continuous stream of consciousness is your life, and you are the only one who can experience it, who can know if it exists and if it is continuous. And transporters are scary because they cause breaks in that consciousness, making a copy that lives the life that you have left with no one the wiser, with no one able to be wiser. And while transporters aren't real, breaks in consciousness are. If you go for surgery when they put you under, you can't be sure if it's you that woke up. For that matter, your bed might be a suicide machine. Every night's slip into unconsciousness, the warm embrace of the reaper. And every morning, the first and only day of a new creature's conscious life. It's impossible to know. Sleep well tonight. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> enjoying the wonderful rest of the break we are having? <laughs> um, Holy cow. Yes, the problems with Star Trek. And I do recommend going on the YouTubes and checking out CGP Grey. He has some wonderful videos. That's the most recent he's made. They're all about that level of depth and um, really, really clever. But... On this a idea, suicide box. A suicide box. Oh is is sleep a suicide box? Is sleep a suicide box? How do we know it's us every morning? Oh man, that's 
that's a really that's a really hard question to answer for sure. I mean, I am going to walk out of this room a completely different person cellularly than the person who walked into this room. All this, technically, uh, yeah. yeah. And so, is it still me? Um, I mean, it is you, but you're changing. So, defining. But I you still got the be, zits I did when I came in here. Uh, defining, defining you is this the is the part that's tough. Mm-hmm. This is where the science of the scientist falls short, because it gets to this aspect of what as a theologian I immediately think the answer to this is well it's easy the transporter is transporting your body and your soul that's why yeah. they're two different things and so if, if the deconstructor wasn't working properly the thing that teleported down to the ground would be an identical copy of your body and it would just kind of stand there breathing for a little bit and then just kind of keel over and die <laughs> yeah without the soul exactly because the soul is what brings the consciousness consciousness Mm-hmm. And that's why it's still you the next morning, Lord willing. <laughs> Lord willing, for uh, sure. Um, but that's, in my mind, this is the solution to the problem, is it, you just put in the soul, and all of a sudden all, this whole issue of the teleporters of death is solved, which, of course, they couldn't do in Star Trek because they don't necessarily believe in any of this. No. Um but it's kind of a fun thought, and it does if you if you eliminate the aspect of the soul, it makes an episode of Star Trek: The Original Series way more interesting. <laughs> yes, they talked about uh, two characters uh, in that video. W- one of them, he was split up between two people. Yeah, Riker. In the other one, Star uh, Trek: Next Generation. And then, and then the other one was two people were brought together in uh, one person. Tuvok and no, not two. Yeah, I think it was Tuvok and. No, it wasn't Tuvok. It was the other guy. It was on an episode of Voyager. I don't remember the people's huh. name. Felix and Tuvok, I think it was. Okay. That was that was very interesting to, to hear about. Or since we're doing the inflationary language, Threevok and Felix. Threevok. <laughs> um, they're fun episodes. Um, both of them end up dealing with it in different ways because it's the same problem put two different ways. The first one that came up was in Star Trek Next Generation um, where Riker gets split and so you end up with two different personalities. Um, one is sort of pissed off superhero Riker and the other one's sort of scared all the time super nice Riker. And oh. so um, one guy tries to blow up the ship and the other guy hides in a corner and so they have to find the guy who's hiding in the corner and knock out the guy who's blowing up the ship and <laughs> stick them back together again. Um, so wow. in that, they're basically going with the idea of, yeah, it's kind of him, but because it's split in two, it's really only half of him. Half of him. Yeah. Um, and which half is which? Uh, and sort of diving into the idea of who who are we? Are we, is there, I mean, we're multi-depth creatures, but can we actually be split into these different parts of our being, or is it more complicated than that? And then the other one was, um, they're two different species, too, which made it interesting. Oh, wow. One's Vulcan, and the other one's, I don't know, Talaxian or something. Okay. Whatever Talaxian is. And um, they got thunked together into a different being who had the logic of, of Vulcan and the um, empathy and, and taste buds of uh, Talaxian. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really interesting to see um, 
but there were some brain issues and they had to figure out a way to separate them but they were pretty awesome as a combo and I was kind of sad to see it go because it was really fun looking at this weird creation that Star Trek had made yeah I, yeah I always wondered now my question has been answered uh, who that who that strange looking character was yeah. whenever I've seen him but okay yeah he's uh, sort of unique to that TV that like you said, Star Trek is nothing if consistently inconsistent. Each TV series has sort of its own mythos of its own and own way of dealing with things. Yeah. So um, <laughs> let's stick with the consist- wonderfully consistently inconsistent and go to a consistently consistent ending of our show. Oh. Look at that yes. seamless transition. There you go. <laughs> okay. So um, that's it for the week. Um, and really for next week too, because yeah, of course so we'll be on break uh, yeah, we'll, along we'll with the rest of spring you. break, and so we'll uh, see. By the end, we'll be uh, broke. We won't see you all, but uh, you will we- hear from us in two weeks. Wait, two weeks, Lord willing, two weeks. Lord willing. Um, if it's not you, it'll have the memories of you. So does it really matter? <laughs> so 